welcoming you to be in the know. For the next half hour, you are in fine company, fine if somewhat frazzled, in a stellar week for football journalism. John Cross, the chief football writer of the Daily Mirror, juggling football politics with England internationals. On Merseyside and sleep-deprived, Dominic King, the Northwest football reporter for the Daily Mail, and quite simply everywhere, Rob Harris, the global sports correspondent for the Associated Press, to give us a brief on the political ramifications of the past week. Let's go through the main headlines then. And in Dominic's paper, the Mail on Sunday, VAR, the joy killer. It's killing the game. Van Dyke could be out for the season. Dominic King's article on the fact that we believe that Virgil van Dyke is out for a long time, but an exclusive on be in sports we will wait for the full scans to confirm if it is an acl injury and in the sunday mirror sport van down and simon mullock saying in this a champions league week incoming that ronald koeman is resigned to losing Lionel messi to manchester city next year they are bending the rules Jordan Henderson, the Liverpool captain, saying, I think they bend the line sometimes to make it offside. I'm not sure how they do it. I've seen it before. We'll explain maybe why he's seeing those bendy lines. It's got a lot to do with the camera angles. We'll explain it all later. Um, Sam Wallace, an absolute sensational week for him, breaking stories time and time again, followed up by many of his colleagues in the broadsheets and the tabloids and online and in agencies. But a stellar week. Project Big Picture was a threat to the game's soul, but change is coming. And yes, the Americans don't believe in the drop, but hopefully they won't get their way. We want to keep relegation and the threat of jeopardy going. And that's exactly what Steve Parrish says here in the Sunday Times. We'll have a forensic look at his very reasons and measured approach on what has to happen next. Compromise is ultimately the name of the game. And we've seen Ronaldo at Juve, PSG stars down with COVID. England's top striker, Wayne Rooney, now undergoing an emergency COVID test. We wish him well, but it'll be interesting for those Champions League players to see how their absence shapes this Champions League week. We'll have a full look at that, but I think there is only one place to start. Mayhem and meltdown on Merseyside. Dom, give us the latest. Uh, where, where do we begin? Do we start with VAR? Do we start with Virgil van Dijk? I mean, it was just a, a chaotic game. It was probably the most exciting game there's been um, of a, a derby for, at Goodison for oh, five, six years. Um, but there's, there was obviously very serious ramifications at the end of it for Liverpool, um, mainly Virgil van Dijk. Um, they're awaiting news on the, the scan uh, that he had last night. Um, potentially uh, cruciate ligament damage, which would rule him out for the rest of the season. If that is the case, it would be a huge, huge blow for Liverpool's aspirations of of winning the title because we know how good he's been. Um, he doesn't miss matches. I think the last time he he missed, uh, the only time I can recall him going off in a Premier League game was in September 2018 when he cracked his ribs against Southampton. But, um, you know, you, you could sort of see the slow motion replays of the um, the, I'm, I'm loath to call it a challenge by Jordan Pickford because because okay. <laughs> it, it wasn't. Um, but you know, it looks it looks very serious, and, and all the things that I'm hearing is that he's uh, he's set for a prolonged layoff. 
yeah, bad is the latest update, isn't it? Um, we're waiting to hear if the ACL injury is confirmed. Crossy, um, instantly, when you saw that collision, that tackle, what colour card were you waiting to see? Oh, well, I, 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 certainly, certainly some colour card. I mean, it's, it was just ridiculous because, you know, listen, I was watching it on the, on the telly at home, uh, sort of studying the games. And then your first instinct is, oh, well, you know, I, I guess it, it, it's got to depend on whether he's onside or offside. And then you think logically, well, of course, you know, actually, even if, he, if he's offside, you can't do that to an opponent. I mean, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, it's like likening someone to preparing to take a throw in. And then just before he's thrown, in, thrown it in, so the ball's not in play, not in active play, someone's gone up and headbutted him. I mean, it, you know, you'd expect that player to be sent off. Of course you would, even if it wasn't active play. So I guess what I'm saying is, even though it's not active play, the thought process quickly comes into play, doesn't it? That, that basically will still take action. Because you see the replay, which the VAR, David Coote, is obviously able to do. And you think he's, he's, he's going to be punished retrospectively. And... I mean, it's just unthinkable, unfathomable that the VAR hasn't been able to do that. Why? I do think there's a school of thought amongst referees um, that sometimes if it's a junior referee doing uh, the VAR, as was in this case, and you've got a much more senior, respected referee on the pitch, you've got this element of cronyism where basically the junior ref doesn't want to over overrule the sort of kind of senior ref which is one of the pointed to failings of VAR, because we could talk about VAR all day. I've always been an advocate of VAR. I think it's not worked to some degree. Please don't get me wrong. But you're only looking at the quality of humans operating the VAR. The VAR, you know, is can only do what it can do with the technology. But ultimately, you are still relying on humans and you will still get human error in the operation of VAR, and that, that's the problem. Got it horribly, horribly wrong. It was a thoroughly embarrassing day. As Don rightly says, you know, you see those, you know, sort of the offside lines uh, for Henderson's winner, and no one can work it out. It's the worst decision on that one, you know, which, you know, in the grand scheme of things, doesn't feel half as bad this morning, does it, after the Van Dyke news. Um, but it, it still, it's still a wretched decision and the worst one I've seen to date. Rob, let's look at this. Jordan Henderson, because it really looked like he was absolutely going to prove why we get the Football Writers Association gave him Footballer of the Year um, this year, because we know how influential he can be in times of crisis for Liverpool. He's talked about the lines bending. We've all been to these PGMOL briefings and they have talked about camera angles and how they can give this curve and this bend. And that's what you will see while they're illustrating it. But it's not what they actually see inside Stockley Park. Is that an explainer at all? Yeah, that is the point, isn't it? Because those lines are thickened to make it clearer to look on television. But I think it really just confuses viewers even more. And so much of this has got to be about communication because it's relatively new technology. What well, was only three years ago, it was used really by FIFA for the first time at the Confed Cup. So it's massively experimental still. And you've got to bring fans along the journey. It's not some state secrets. It's not commercial secrets. It's just helping fans understand why refereeing decisions are taken and why they should be taken. And also perhaps the, the law should adapt as well because, you know, you're watching a game like yesterday and ultimately you want goals to be ruled out for legitimate reasons or goals, you don't want them 
goals that seem perfectly fine, generally to the eye, to be ruled out for really pedantic, fine examinations of margins of where the dots are. I mean, you've got to look at it within the spirit of the game as well. It's, it's how you sort of rewrite the, the laws and how you set that out in a way that makes it possible. Because as it stands, someone like David Ellery, who's in charge of all this, does not like things like margins of error necessarily, he likes it really precise and codified in there. But, you know, I think it's just about keeping the fans and not putting off the fans. I mean, obviously, it's brilliant for the actual sport itself in a way, the fact that we have these huge talking points every week about VAR where we thought the introduction of it would completely wipe out any room for controversy. So it's not like we just um, have routine games and routine instances. It keeps the conversation going, which, uh, you know, some sports do thrive on. So it's not all bad in that in that way. But actually, I think just for the confidence in what they're seeing and for that annoyance of, of things like what seem to most people perfectly legitimate goals to be ruled out we need to have better communication from why the referees are taking these decisions as soon as post-match so these debates don't linger and also just to educate about why look decisions are taken and you know what the laws of the game are and uh, I think everyone comes out better as a result. Dom, Liverpool have put out a statement saying they want clarification from the PGMOL. Um, the PGMOL say they will continue and they um, happily engage with dialogue it might not be face to face because of the covid regulations i'm told but uh, there will be conversations had if they're not being had already today um but liverpool really wants to seek clarification on the line for offside and the problem with this is that it's this is actually fifa regulated technology isn't it so when that line comes down that's not actually the VAR in Stockley Park, it's technology that he has, is told that's the result for offside. He actually has no interference in that. <laughs> Do you know what? It, it just conf it, it confuses me. Um, I've never seen Jurgen Klopp as... Um, I, I don't want to say browbeaten yesterday, but he was. He, I've, I've never seen him sort of so spent, emotionally spent at the end of a game. Because he, uh, uh, however many um, broadcasters he has to see after the end, of, um, after a match is finished, I think he said he'd, he'd done ten tele television interviews before he, he came to see us, and everybody said the same to him about the about nobody could provide a reason why um, Mane was given offside. He'd looked at the he'd looked at the the stills when he'd been in the dressing room, and he couldn't he couldn't work it out himself. And I ju I just think. I, I just think he's absolutely um, fizzing with rage about it all um, because Liverpool should have won that game. He's, a, he's an emotional man, and there's no sort of logical reason why that why that was offside. We can we I, th I think we could probably talk for the next hour of this program, and none of us could say, well, yeah, that part of Mane is offside, or it, yeah, yeah, I can sort of see why. It was just the most nonsensical decision I've seen. And you know, you know, you know what? Funny, Crossy's made the point there about um, it is it is human error at the end of the day. If it was the old, if if it wasn't um, in the time of VAR and a, a, ref, a linesman had flagged, and we looked at the, at the television replays afterwards, you'd kind of go, "Oh, it's a bad mistake," but you'd move on. You'd move on from it because that that's part of the game. You know, no referee could sort of be expected to, or linesman could make that sort of decision. But now, when we've actually got the the the, the technology to supposed to help us, we're getting even worse decisions. And I, I think the, the the horrible thing about VAR is 
it's absolutely killing the game because even last season when fans were in, you don't know whether you can celebrate or not. You don't know whether now whether a goalkeeper saved the penalty or not because there's all these checks and it's like it's almost like the the they're trying to um, make PlayStation football where everything's perfect and it's not a perfect game. It's even harder for those journalists tweeting from the game when you do the goal tweets and then suddenly actually got to pull it back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, the thing is for me is that basically this has been a long debate, isn't it, about those drawing of the lines. I Listen, I think that every every major league that uses VAR uses those lines. And, uh, you know, the Premier League is the only one that opt to, opts to actually show it. And I just think, you know, it's good to have the information. Please don't get, get me wrong. I'm try, not trying to sort of say, oh, we should kid everyone that it's wrong. But it does create so much more controversy for them. And I often wonder why, you know, what's, what's, what's the point? What's the value in it to them to do it? It's good to, to it's obviously to try and keep the fans informed to offer a little bit more entertainment. Yeah, let's be honest, it's, it's backfired because we'd be sitting here today saying, God, sure about that one you know but because we've seen those lines that they don't get in in Italy Spain wherever you know they don't have that same level of controversy and so actually the Premier League are are inviting it really um to do it I think it's a good idea in principle but we asked for it we did ask for it originally didn't we, we asked yeah we did and listen they viewed it they, they they reviewed it again in the summer didn't they with with the various uh whether it was a good idea or not and the clubs opted to stick with it um, this is uh, the, I spoke to PGMOL yesterday um, and they said it's not really factually correct to say that Coop didn't to actually check the incident. They're saying what's being reported is that he didn't actually look for a red card. They actually say factually he did look at the incident as a whole, but didn't look at the red card in detail as he felt it wasn't a red. Reaction? <laughs> <laughs> if, that's, if that's not a red card... If that's not a red card, I, I, I don't know what is. Um, he was out of control. He never got the ball. He's hurt the player. It's, it's, it, if it takes every criteria, whether it's it's serious foul play, whether it's violent conduct, where it, it just takes every single box for a red card. And I would be amazed if the FA don't look at it retrospectively, given given how much it's been... Uh, analysed and, and scrutinised in the, in the last 48 in the 48 hours that will go to Monday and how much it's been talked about it was, it, it was an awful challenge It's a really simple question for me, why didn't he view it and check it as a red card offence? Simple, because he doesn't want to over, overrule the most senior, most respected um, referee that we've got in English football or ask I'm, I'm, you. That's why it's there, they said they promised they'd use it more and they just haven't, have they? Shall we? And I think also the language sometimes the different because I think every instance is checked or many instances are checked but not as many are reviewed to use their sort of various bits of terminology. But I think also one of the other issues we encounter is the fact that it can never be used on um, yellow cards on, on bookings. But even when it's a second yellow card and uh, there should be a sending off, and it's one of the the odd quirks, not to say here, but just generally across the, the application of VAR, which you know does lead to many more confusing situations as well. Ultimately, then, I think the next question has to go to Pickford. Richarlison has actually apologised on social media. I haven't seen that yet from Pickford. Should he apologise and, and is his England position in doubt now, do we think, Rossi? Uh, I th listen, I think it is in doubt, really, if, I, if I'm honest. I think the one salvation for England has been that 
he's he, you know he's not made the same level of mistakes or or had the same level in inconsistency for England as he has done for Everton. There's no doubt about it. Everton has signed another goalkeeper to, to maybe put pressure on him to maybe back him up. To I guess if you if you're being ultra positive from Pickford's point of view, to try and hope that the competition then sort of kind of pushes his level of performance back up to where it was in say 2018. Because since the World Cup, he's just not been the same keeper. And yesterday was was such a Jordan Pickford at his worst moment. And that is, you know, just being so excitable, just being completely out of control. And, you know, everything was about a so hyped up that that's, in my view, that that's why he's flown out of his goal at Van Dyke. And the, the, the one at the end, I mean, it's, it's, it's meat and drink for, honestly, the save. He's got to save that. He, he absolutely has to save that. And again, you think, you know, he's just been so hyper that is he calm enough to make a last minute save almost? You know, we talk about sort of kind of strikers, you know, going through one on one, keeping their composure. There has to be an element of that for goalkeepers. And for me, he's just too excitable at the moment. His mindset is not right. He's got the ability, he made super saves during the game, by the way. He really did. And yet, so he's got the ability, but it's me for me it's all mental yeah. Dom, Dom you, you were you said it at the start but I'll point that, that question straight to you Virgil van Dijk out it's looking like the whole season could that cost Liverpool the title I, I wouldn't want to be so dramatic and, and say that, that 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 one player could um one player could have that that kind of burden given how good Liverpool have been but um it's just a huge, it's just a huge sort of thing, um, and how they will. It, it, it's not just what he does on the pitch. He's a, he's a leader off it. He's, you know him and Jordan Henderson and Milner. They basically they run the dressing room. Um, he's just you know, they, they sing the song. The Liverpool fans sing the song about him being calm as you like, and he's just he's he's put this sort of calmness all around the team and the and, and the stadium. Um, and without it, they, they looked jumpy yesterday, Liverpool. Particularly with no Alisson Becker there, it's a really, really difficult um, spell this for Liverpool now without two huge figures, um, and it, it it's it's going to require other people to step up and, and, and prove that they, they they can make light without him. Let's move on because we could be here all day. Um, Rob, I want to turn to another figure for England who was very much in scru under scrutiny. Harry Maguire. I was very concerned about his mental state as he walked off that pitch because he looked lost, bewildered, shocked at how that game had unravelled for him. But what a way to pull your career back, really. Yeah, particularly when so many have been sort of suggesting, oh, does he need to be taken out of the firing line? Does he need to ha have a weekend's rest now as a result of the uh, sending off for England? But, uh, you know, I think it's obviously very hard to put yourself in the mindset of a player like that. Clearly, all the recent events of the summer, he was, you know, desperate to get playing again. It's why he did try to get in contention for the England squads in September before Gareth did have to withdraw him. And you look at him the other night and it did look really disconsolate, the fact when he was uh, walking off that Wembley pitch, it was such obviously a, an odd experience, the fact it's uh, an empty stadium anyway. And there he is sort of so early in a game after half an hour you know, a, a costly uh, dismissal, reducing England to 10 men. And the fact, I think he showed himself yesterday, he can actually, you know, you can recover. You don't need to be told from the outside what, what is best for you. And the fact that it seemed like getting back to playing for United again did seem 
um, the best thing for him, particularly obviously it was so bad before the international break with that uh, defeat to Spurs and the fact that um, you know he, he did play that such crucial part in, in United uh, coming back yesterday um, at Newcastle to set things back on track because actually had things not gone right for uh, United, Manchester United at uh, Newcastle yesterday, would it, the pressure on Sol's shoulders starts to grow absolutely uh, intently as well. So that does give him some uh, some significant breathing space as well. But um, I mean, it's a difficult time for um, you know for Maguire. He is going through a lot after the summer. He's still got all the um, the legal process in, in Greece on his mind as well. Obviously, the fact to, to resolve all that, and he's doing that all while can't forget still the world's most expensive to play, player and the. Uh, the captain of Manchester United as well. So th- there is a lot of attention and pressure on him. John, um, how much were the knives sharpening for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer when that one goal went in for Newcastle United? I mean, his substitutions did make an impact, but how stable, we're, we're told, the owners are unequivocal in, in backing him at present. Do you think it will last? Um, I, I, d- I do find the whole thing a bit baffling. I, you know, we shouldn't escape the fact that, that last season their running was was sensational. You know, it didn't quite work out in the end, and and it was a case of kind of almost hobbling over the line into the top four, wasn't it? Let's be honest here. They did sort of kind of have a, have a couple of wobbles there at the end. But having said that, when you know, kind of when things were were not right, the Fernandez uh, signing was a masterstroke, and they had a wonderful run. And you wouldn't have given them much of a chance to get into the top four. And so it was mission accomplished, and and they closed down the gap. Um, and uh, you know, I, I I personally think Man United should and would expect more than Solskjaer is is able to offer them. And I think he's there. Let's let's not kid ourselves because of his status as a club legend. I don't know, you know, he's been there for getting on for two years now. At the same time, Jose Mourinho, was when, when he was there for two years, he was being judged on whether kind of his term was a success or failure. And to me, the judgment seems to come against Manchester United, whether it's success or failure, rather than Solskjaer. And I think in relative terms, Solskjaer actually gets away with a lot of criticism. You know, I'm thinking about all forms of media here um, because... You know, after that, after that Spurs game, I felt that he was. I didn't think he was going to be immediately sacked, but Man United would be idiotic not to be, begin look looking at the process and thinking, can we do better here? We, this is Man United we're talking about here. You know, when Liverpool raising the bar, when their streets are ahead in every single sense in every single department, Man United cannot let that happen for so long that 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 they're widening the gap still further. And you look at their transfer business, and yes, their transfer business wasn't ideal. They needed further strengthening. And by the way, you know, part of that issue is one of the reasons why Maguire's struggling, because he hasn't got a regular, really solid, strong partner with him. I don't think Lindelof is good enough. You know, they never seem to give, you know, by a run of games, which I find a bit bizarre, um, bearing in mind how good he was when he first came in. And I just think they need a stronger base and they haven't got that at the moment and that in itself is affecting Solskjaer and affecting Maguire so it was a great response by Maguire you can't get away from that I thought that was a fantastic show of mental strength and sort of kind of you know performance levels so you know massive credit to him for doing that and easing the pressure on Solskjaer as you say. Dominic do you think Liverpool see Man United as any kind of threat to them this season? 
Um, <laughs> I, 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 Jürgen Klopp wouldn't be so disrespectful to dismiss anybody. I'll, I'll say that from from an outsider's point of view, I don't think they are. I don't think they are any kind kind of threat. Um, I just found it, I found Solskjaer fascinating last night when he was when he was talking about the the, the style of the win as if everything was back on track. And it was like, you know, oh, you know, it was bad against Tottenham. You know, those results kind of can't happen for us. But, you know, th this is much more like what we can do. Yeah, our season starts now, right? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, we all know, we all know that in three or four weeks there'll be another bad result somewhere, another terrible performance. And they'll go through this cycle of up and down and up and down where they look like they'll win. They look like they're getting their act together and then they'll lose badly. Um... I can't see them finishing in the top four. I didn't understand the transfer um, policy this summer. Um, I like Crossy. I don't think Solskjaer's a Manchester United manager. I wouldn't like, you know, I don't want to see him as if being disrespectful to somebody who has um, done so much for the club and is is a is revered. But I I just think if if you look at Manchester United, the criteria for a manager should be. If you're 1-0 down in the quarter-final of a Champions League with 15 minutes to go, have you got the man on the sideline that can make the changes to turn things around? Is Oli Gordon Solskjaer that man for them? I'm not, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. But while, while they have the people in power, like Ed Woodward, like um, Matt Judge, like Richard Arnold, who are making the decisions, then I don't, I don't see things changing dramatically. I really don't. And it's going to be a really challenging next couple of weeks. We can really... Judge Solskjaer then because they've got the, they've got PSG, they've yeah. got Chelsea, they've got Arsenal, they've got Leipzig, then they've got yeah. Everton as well. So that's a really important sequence of games where Solskjaer will be able to show actually is he up to the job? I mean there is there is an interesting counter view of it as well I think which is imagine if it was um, Pochettino coming in January just after that Burnley defeat and had the run to the end of the season where they make the third. They get through to the Europa League semi-finals. You've probably seen some great sort of transformation. So, you know, interesting in that regard. But you know, I don't think Solskjaer at all has uh, proved himself capable in his um, couple of years there of managing a club like uh, Manchester United. And soon we're going to get the financial results from United for last season. That's going to show what sort of challenge they are in going forward as well, and uh, all the shortages with the the impact of the pandemic as well. So uh, that'll be a chance for. Edward would to be uh, quizzed by the investors or more likely talking about the social media hits, although that was one of the other things that happened before the game yesterday. There was that ill-judged uh, Man United tweet that I think they did have to delete in the end where they're saying about how the um, the fans are being spared the the walk up the stands at uh, St James's Park so they get to the joy of watching it from home instead. <laughs> Yeah, that went down quite quick, didn't it? Just, just not the time. Uh, <laughs> Crossy, uh, talking about one club with a club le legend in the dugout, let's look to another. Frank Lampard, Chelsea. Mm. Um, unlike Manchester United, because you have to say they were in Europe for a long time. I, I was with them all the way in, in Germany. So they did start their season late. They didn't have a big pre-season. Of course, they didn't have Harry Maguire for uh, private reasons. Um, Chelsea have had time. Their, their new players haven't had long to bed in. Is it all down to Kepa or do the centre-backs really need to be shored up because they're looking worrying as well? Yeah, I mean, you know, Kepa, you feel for him in a way, really, because he's got a, a, a reprieve because obviously Mendy was, was injured. 
And then then he's got his his centre half Zuma, who's had such a good start to the season in my in my view individually. You know, he's arguably been their best defender. Uh, has dropped a, a back pass short, and everyone's going, "Oh my God, Kepa's kind of you know got it wrong again," and he's dropped another howler. I've looked at it again. And I have to say, you know, it's not Kepa's fault. It's not, it really isn't. You, you know, look, he's, could he do slightly better when Ings turns back? You know, arguably, you know, but I, I actually think that basically that, that you've got to put that down to Zuma um, in a rare mistake. I think Kepa, it, you know, is such an issue now. Um, do they get a response because that, you know, from Kepa in his performance because they've signed Mendy? Well, let's wait and see. Well, I certainly hope so. Um, but I, I think it's the balance, it's finding that balance because at the moment we, we applaud Chelsea going forward. They've signed wonderful attacking players. You know, most of their new signings are obviously on the pitch and involved yesterday. You know, Zayat coming on, wasn't he? But, you know, Vern already looks fantastic. He looks such a Premier League player, doesn't he? He's going to be an absolute sensation, um, you, you know. And Havertz, I think, he's clearly got you know, very, very different player, but it's got qualities. And I think they'll be really exciting to, going forward. But it's about that balance. It strikes me that, you know, Lampard wants to find a balance to me that doesn't mean that he has to play a back three. Because I think for him, a back three is only comes in when he can't trust his defence enough. And he wants to find a better balance in midfield. I, you know, whether that's, you know, Kante on in a in a deeper role or whatever, but that balance of that team at the moment is not is not right. They will score goals, but they will concede far far too many. I still fancy Chelsea to finish, you know, top four, and I think it's a process. I think Lampard gets frustrated when people kind of want to judge him very quickly, but unfortunately, that's 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 the rules, isn't it? You know, and they've got you know they start the Champions League campaign this week, and it's 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 only going to get tougher for Lampard, I think. Timo Werner just flying in that more central role, which people have sort of been calling for Frank Lampard to put him into. And it's certainly paid to effect, didn't it? Another player who we know does so well in the central role and proved that the minute he was given that opportunity for England, Danny Ings, Dominic Kings. How happy, happy are you that he's flying again? Oh, I'm delighted to see. He's one of the um, one of the nicest lads you could come across in the game. Um, he's worked so, so hard to... to um, Get himself fit, get himself back, get himself noticed. Really, um, he's just uh, he's flying. Um, probably him and it's it's a toss up between him and um, Dominic Calvert Lewin for who's the um, most informed striker in England. Um, I was a bit disappointed he didn't get more minutes um, during the last international break because I think he's been. Um, I think he de he deserves a proper chance. Um, but you know he for him to nearly win the Golden Boot last season. With Southampton, I, I don't think it can be underestimated what an unbelievable campaign that was. That 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 sort of getting yourself into the PFA team of the year. He was that good. Um, he's you know he's dedicated as uh, he's he's dedicated. He's got a chef at home. He's got a personal trainer. He's all the little edges that he can he can get um, to to maximise his game. And Southampton are Southampton are flying for it. And it's massively encouraging for England going into next summer as well. We're not sort of then desperate relying on one striker being fit and pinning our hopes on Harry Kane, however much obviously is important to England. But it just gives that 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 hope and that option, those options that we've got scorers uh, throughout the team as well. And the fact that um, Gareth does uh, 
have the the, the options, that means that uh, you know he's not necessarily just reliant on the one player. Um, we have to go to one other match, uh, Crossy. I'm not going to use the M and A words. I think they've been used enough. Um, but uh, it was a game of chess, and it was checkmate to Pep. Sorry, Mikel. He uh, absolutely worked that one beautifully. But it showed how much Mikel Arteta had learnt and rem remembered about his team. The change in tactics throughout that match. It was not a thrilling encounter, but a masterclass from both of them. Yeah, it was it was an interesting game, wasn't it? It was intriguing, if I could put it like that. Really, it, it never really caught light, did it? That that's that's the point, and that that's what disappointed me a little bit about Arsenal in that last twenty minutes. You thought they'd chase it a bit more, you know. So maybe sort of Arteta just thought, you know, in previous years, kind of Arsenal have had a right old sort of kind of chasing and battering at Man City. So basically, we'll, we'll, we'll play safe. It just seemed to me that sort of you know. The, it was difficult to work out the formations of both teams, let's be honest. Man City, you know, even more so, really, especially when you're watching it, you know, from from, from TV from afar. Um, you know, what struck me was that Carl Walker was just absolutely everywhere. As soon as Arsenal looked remotely dangerous, there was Carl Walker. who had an absolutely astonishing game. You know, just seemed to be sort of kind of sweeping up and, you know, really fantastic in every defensive aspect. Really, so you know, I thought he was good. Listen, Arsenal, you know, made a fairly solid start. Now they've lost at Liverpool. They've lost, you know, comprehensively, by the way. And then they're basically, you know, outmaneuvered a little bit by Man City. And I think that's representative of where they are. I also think that City, you know, for every it was a good win, but was it a win that made you think, with everything that's going on at Liverpool, is this City going to be? team going to be ready to seize on perhaps what might be an opportunity I've, I've yet to be you know com completely convinced on that are their defensive signings good enough I'm not not so sure you know do they have enough now in midfield you know I mean Foden what a player he is emerging to be but are that will they have enough I'm not sure I'm not sure you've yet to be convinced do you know what? Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but uh, do you know what I'm fascinated about with, with Man City is um, is Guardiola's um, sort of demeanour, the way he's speaking after games, even before games. He just looks so he looks kind of deflated, almost like he's going through the motions at times. I don't know whether he's whether he's sick of the media commitments that he has to do, whether he just prefers to be focused and purely on on the football. But whenever you sort of see him, he looks. <sighs> Distracted, maybe is that is that the right word, or sort of a bit bit prickly? Um, I wonder whether he's really enjoying it at the moment. Um, I mean, it's, it, it'd be quite early, quite early in the season to sort of be dispirited about things, but it, something just doesn't feel right about it all with Man City at the minute. Maybe they just need to get in, in, into a run and everyone fit, and he, when he, he pairs Diaz and Laporte together, and and, uh, and he's got De Bruyne and Sergio Aguero's back at his peak, and then we'll then we'll see how good they are. But I don't know. There's just something something just doesn't quite feel right about it all. Yes, very touchy. Sorry, I just I don't know whether I can sort of interject with this. Sorry to interrupt, Rob, but it was a funny moment. I was at the Wolves Man City game, and then basically, you know, Man City have beaten Wolves away three one, and um, you, you know, which I have to say is a good win. You know, basically in any season, frankly, because of the way Wolves, the Wolves have been flying. 
And then basically my, my, my great pal, Neil Custis, basically in, interjects at one point in, in this sort of Zoom press conference after, afterwards and says to Pep, you know, largely based on Dom's point here, Pep, why, you know, you've just won away from home. Why are you looking so miserable? And he, sort of, <laughs> he said, well, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. He got very defensive on it and then tried to be a little bit perkier about it afterwards. But the fact of the matter was... He, he was a bit miserable, frankly. You know, bearing in mind they've just won away from from home at Wolves. I actually thought he, he, he deserved to smile, which he then tried to crack. But I think Dom's spot on. I'm not. I'm not completely feeling it with Pep and his, his body language at the moment. Is he? Is he really buying into it? Maybe he'll prove us wrong. I mean, he's done so before. He's an absolute genius in my eyes. But you know, I I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not seeing City as the full package this season. Morning. I'm some, I'm, yeah. I was amazed by his defence of um, Sergio Aguero over um, holding the neck of briefly of uh, of um, Charmassi. The fact that um, you know that's not something. Yeah, you know, it's not a type of player. We were saying he's a perfectly nice person. He doesn't see that. Well, I think in that particular moment, it did need uh, you know at least some element of of criticism. The fact that it's not right to do. Um, what it did, Aguero, because it looked, you know, it looked terrible that 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 moment, and it's um, you know something he should almost be, you know, at least warned about about his conduct for for not doing that, for getting close to any official. I think you know you wouldn't think you, you should put in your hand on any sort of um, um, official at a game at all. Yeah, I don't think this has anything to do with the fact it's a female um, official either. It's just the sense that you don't you don't touch an official I have seen it from Aguero in the past actually and been quite surprised um so he has got a bit of form on it um when he's when he's remonstrating or he wants to sort of pull someone to to get their attention or to pull them back but it's um definitely something that will be looked into no doubt I'm sure and it's not like it's not like you, you need to get closer because there's too much noise in the stadium so you can <laughs> be heard even at the moment very true. Um, shall we move on? Um, although one thing, Crossy, do you think our VAR should have helped you helped out Arsenal on the on the night? Oh, I thought it, I thought it was. Yeah, there was another incident in a in a game, wasn't there? Where um, the, the, the high boot comes in. I think it might have been Fabinho at um, at Goodison, and you know it's it, it's a foul. It, it, you know anywhere it, far under anywhere else on the pitch, basically. You know, Carl Walker basically has made the challenge there, isn't he? I think on Gabriel. And then basically anywhere else on the pitch, that's a foul. I thought you were very generous to Carl Walker not to bring that up earlier when you were praising him. <laughs> oh, I thought he had a terrific game. Absolutely yes, terrific. And against England. Um, and for England. Um, we have to move on to um, a sensational piece of journalism by Sam Wallace this week, of which the whole of our industry have excelled responding to it. Um, Steve Parrish, who I think has very much been the voice of wisdom, the um, Crystal Palace chairman, of course, with some very, very strong words. Um, football, he says, is a meritocracy. It cannot be a game forever rigged to benefit some teams based on an arbitrary period of success. And also says, while I represent Crystal Palace around the table, I'm acutely aware we are also a proxy for the, for the 72 EFL clubs. And we have a duty of care to the game in everything we do absolutely scathing um ollie holt to project big stitch up and the pygmy leaders who are incapable of working for the common good crossy you have had to be uh as as many people i'm sure um taking zoom calls with the efl chairman while you're covering england internationals juggling how would you sum up this story in terms of a hierarchical tug of war we've not seen anything like it since the forming of the premier league have we 
No, we haven't. And I think, you know, arguably it's the it's it's the most, you know, dramatic. What a scoop by Sam Wallace and, you know, fantastic story. And it's got everyone talking. What I would say is that if if you are, and I do sense this from the reaction, really, from those involved, you know, Man United and Liverpool, really, if you are pushing for a conversation and that project big picture was on its 18th draft, and wasn't quite ready for the world yet and basically putting it out there has caused them some you know um you know, uh, real problems on it um then i actually think you could flip it on the other other side and actually say well it, at least it started the conversation while the premier league would adamant that basically the strategic review was already underway it certainly focused it more. It sharpened the minds. And basically, I do think it'll bring about change. And when I say change, it could, you know, we could be talking about even under the Premier League guys about, you know, fewer numbers in the Premier League to enable the bigger clubs to play more Champions League games. That's what they want. And and basically also, you know, a, a different share of TV rights and also prize money. So... You can't get away from it. I think that Man United and Liverpool are viewing it as a, you know, um, a sort of a partial victory. I actually thought that Steve Parrish was quite measured in his in his comments about it. Um, it's good to hear someone talk, you know, talk up and, and and sort of kind of have his voice heard, you know. And I, I gather that you know Crystal Palace were sort of kind of quite vocal, you know, in the Premier League meeting the other day. So. I just think it's one that's, you know, Sam Wallace has written about it and saying that basically it's not, you know, Project Big Picture isn't happening, but change is coming. And he's absolutely right. And that basically Project Big Picture, I think you've got to admit that basically has driven some of that change. There's no getting away from it. Dominic, how taken aback were you when you heard that story that Liverpool and Manchester United, two fierce rivals in your region, actually plotting together? Um did, were you taken aback, particularly with Liverpool, who've taken such a high moral stance in recent years on society? Yeah, I was uh, I was flabbergasted, um, very very disappointed by, it, uh, to be honest with you. I'm not um, like like Crossy said, like Sam said, um, change is needed. They need to do something to help uh, restructure the payments and look after the 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 lower end of the table, but. I hated the idea that they just thought they could sort of say, well, we'll get rid of the League Cup, we'll get rid of the Community Shield, we'll get rid of all these things that there's there's so much history attached to them. Uh, we want fewer games, we want this, that and the other. And it's, look, the people who run Manchester United and the people who run Liverpool have been very, very successful financially. And when you've been successful financially, you don't do anything... Um, how do I say this? Um, they know about the bottom line. They know how to maximise the bottom line. And this is about maximising the bottom line for all of them. I'm, I'm absolutely certain of that. Um, you know, if you're talking about change, personally, I would have loved, I'd like to see it um, where we didn't have four divisions. We had five. You, know, you keep the 92 teams. We've got four divisions of 18 and one of 20. Whether the 20 is in t the division five or division one. Um, but that way, you would truncate the fixture uh, the, the fixture list because the, the, we all, we've all seen the championship and League One and League Two and how many midweek games there are there. If you took, if you minimise the teams, you would have more free weeks, I believe. You'd be able to fit the League Cup in no problem, and there wouldn't be um, 
there wouldn't be the demands on 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 teams in midweek of travel and, and whatnot. And that's what, how I would like to sort of see English football restructured. Um, probably be on my own on that, but it was just an idea. But um, in, uh, just to go back to your initial point, I was absolutely just flabbergasted that you know that they could you know they're obviously thinking about maximising the bottom line, and I just found it pretty unedifying. John, do you think it's just simply um, something that we may just finally one day have to accept when you've got two big American power brokers where in America relegation just simply doesn't exist, that the pressure will come? Will the Premier League bow to that? I don't know. I, I can't believe for a moment that they'll do, just do away with, you know, um, uh, relegation. I think one of, the, one of the good things is, you know, certainly for the, um, you know, Liverpool uh, owners' perspective, perhaps even more so. You know, when you, when I watched recently the the you know the thirty year wait, the documentary on Liverpool's, um, you know, wait for the title and and then their sort of victory this this summer. I just thought I was really sort of you know captured by the American owners. Um, you know, when John Henry speaks, I think he speaks really well. Very, I think it was a mistake on his part not to speak this week um, because he's far more presentable than perhaps the Glazers. Um, and and, and I, I think the, the overall thing is, look, he, of course, as Don rightly says, he wants to maximise the bottom line, but I also think he gets it, you know, um, English football. And I think that's part of the charm. Um, I mean, you know, it, it would be natural, you know, it's ridiculous to suggest that they don't already hold, you know, the, the, the vast majority of power. So they're just looking to strengthen that and they're probably looking to earn more from what they already do wield. We, we also must not overlook the, the absolute crisis that is facing the EFL. You know, the Premier League clubs will argue all day long about why on earth they should bail out the championship. But the championship there is, is on its own. But the, the League One, League Two are in desperate st straits. I mean, it really is. And, and people seem to have lost that somewhere along the line. You know, the, the clubs will go to the wall. I know what the Premier League are saying, that they'll bail them out and they'll step in and they'll listen. And I actually think that's a very, you know, fairly decent offer in, in circumstances. Everyone's got a move at the moment. Everyone's got an agenda, aren't they? You know, so they're making themselves look the good guys again. But, I, you know, I, we shouldn't underestimate that some of these clubs are going to go to the wall. And I, I think in amongst the project big picture, you know, the EFL this week sort of kind of had five or six owners, chairman, you know, um, people from the hierarchy speak up and they did it with full EFL support. They went public, they put their names to it and they spoke really well. So, you know, there's a lot of people behind it. And, you know, I spoke to, you know, the Gillingham chairman, Paul Scally, you know, after the meeting this, this week for the League One clubs, he said not a single League One club spoke up about you know kind of the the, the 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 offer from the premier league so in all amongst this there's, there's no doubt about it the fl clubs have signed up good and proper to the project big picture and something needs to change rob um where do you think this leaves um rick parry at the efl um and also greg clark the fa chairman have been incredibly strong on the fact that he'd walked away from discussions only then to find out he'd actually been heavily involved with them with his own Premier League two-tier idea on the table. Where does he stand now? Egg on his face somewhat? Yeah, that's been the point where, you know, he announced the 
you know, the breakaway threat and the fact he walked away from the meeting, the fact he should actually come fully clean and said, look, I might have raised B teams and, and, and the like from the Premier League and, you know, being fully open because particularly if he knew the correspondence was out there, which he would have done, then there was the potential for it to become public and, and you know, put into question, you know, some of his public statements. So, you know, while we do welcome the fact he did, you know, go public with his letter to the council the other day um, about some elements of the meeting, you've got to be then fully, um, you know, providing the details, particularly anything that could come back to bite. Now, as for Rick Parry, it was just fascinating why you had the former Premier League Chief Executive, now EFL Chairman, as the arch defender of the Glazers and John Henry in public last Sunday, really praising them to Hilton and sort of absolutely for their vision and their insight in actually coming together with all this. And, it, it, you know, it was slightly curiously sort of argued and campaigned. Yes, you know, as Crossy said, it, it has actually generated this big debate that the um, United and Liverpool ownership wanted. It has, I would say, hastened action. You know, the fact they're even announcing a review into, you know, how things should look on Wednesday when we did a media call with Richard Masters was something that wasn't taking place, we were told earlier. I mean, you know, this hadn't been mentioned by Richard Masters before. You know, I asked him whether or not the review would also take into account the size of the Premier League, potentially reducing to 18 as Project Big Picture wanted, and he said, yes, it would do. So that's another conversation we weren't necessarily having as a live one um, until now. And I think it also fits into a bigger um, plans across Europe as well. You know, This isn't some isolated English thing about trying to reduce the size of the Premier League, try to give more power to the big six. This is a strategy from the Juventus chairman, Andrea Agnelli, who's head of the European Club Association. He wants a bigger Champions League. He wants... Um, leagues to be reduced in size so they've got more time these elite clubs to be playing against each other in an expanded Champions League and other sorts of competitions around the world you know this is a wider power play by the elite clubs to um, you know to have more control of the game in Europe and to be making more cash because I think something that was lost in the uh, some of the analysis of Project Big Picture when we're looking at the lower leagues and how much money would flow down. And also when we're discussing about the power structures changed in the Premier League was the financial advantage this would be to the um, big six because they'd gained the rights to sell their own television rights for so many games through a season through the year. They'd get their own rights to in-game broadcasts of uh, highlights as well. And obviously this would be available to all Premier League clubs, but it's going to help those with the bigger fan bases most. And while also would transform the distribution of TV income from the top to the bottom of the Premier League, it would have potentially, you know, created disparities that would take so much away of uh, what we do like about the competitiveness of, of the Premier League. John, um, what, what we do like particularly in the Premier League is fans. Um, and we are increasingly angry that we are behind closed doors we no longer feel privileged just increasingly angry that we still are the one some of the few allowed behind closed doors you wrote a brilliant article among your many um this week about the frustration that clubs are being able to host hospitality events in their hospitality um rooms in their in their hospitality suites in the club to show the game but not show let fans into the matches it is bonkers, I have to say. Um, look, I'm really torn on it, Carrie, in that basically 
I do think we have to we have to remember that the, the nation is facing a, facing a crisis. We're facing in, in, you know increasing um, lockdown rules and protocols, the tier system now. So we shouldn't be insensitive to 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 the issue and and blindly just say, you know, we, we need crowds back. And of course we want crowds back. I mean, blimey, I, I felt last season was a means to an end. Let's get it done. But this season has been so depressing as someone lucky enough as you know as you are to, to and as you say, go into a stadium and see the game. It's just not the same sport, let alone, you know, anything else really without fans. It miss, you know, we miss it so much on every level, every single level. But I guess we do need to be sensitive on this. But what makes it bizarre is then that you can do this, you know, Middlesbrough, one of the clubs involved, you know, can invite can invite, you know, and host fans in the stadium in an executive box behind glass and they can look out and watch a game I mean it is absolutely crazy and the lack of consistency is the thing that grates so if you weren't you know sort of Oliver Dowden going to, to the ballet for example you know and, and the ballet wasn't on well it wouldn't seem such a compelling argument to get fans back into football so we have to find a consistency and also think it's so patronizing towards fans that it feels to me as if the government is making a stand against football. And that's the issue. If they were saying everyone, no one can go to big live events, then okay. But what is that saying about football fans that they don't trust them? You know, because we're talking about being outside here. You know, no one is going to, you know, they're not talking about sort of kind of serving booze and, you know, everyone having a sort of a big party. They're sort of kind of social distancing within the within the stands and that's the frustrating point but I do I am sensitive and, and alive to the fact that you know we've got increasing numbers we shouldn't kid ourselves that this is you know in any way better than it was a few months ago it's not and so I do think it's a fine balance but I think the the, the lunacy of it all is highlighted by that that bonkers story where the EFL clubs can have them in the hospitality areas. Yeah, it's it's madness and almost every fixture we've had it with the Merseyside derby, the disappointment of not having have fans there. And then we have to look to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium today and Bale's return and it must be sickening as it is for every promoted club. But again, another big moment the fans couldn't believe that could happen and they won't be there. Dom, what do you think of his potential to turn back on the charm again? Uh, I think the fact that he's he's back in a place where he's loved, that he knows, um, I think it'll reinvigorate him. Um, and the idea of Son, Gareth Bale and Harry Kane as a front three, I think it should should excite all football fans to see them. I mean, if they click, Spurs are going to be serious, serious, uh, a serious, serious team. Um, you know what, Harry, you're, you're right about uh, and about everything about that that sort of. Um, that feeling of fans not being there for it. Could you imagine what the stadium would have been like? The ovation that he would have got, uh, how he would have felt. You know, he's, he's had he's had to put up with a few years of, um, you know, cat calls and whistling and ever and all the boon from Real Madrid fans. He would have been. They would have taken the roof off for him today. And I, I really, really don't think we can underestimate now how much the empty stadiums are starting to get to players. Um, I spoke to Duncan Ferguson this week um, ahead of the, the Merseyside derby and he, when, when the interview was finishing, he made a point of saying to me, um, he said, make sure, make sure you say about the fans not being there. He said, because it will never, ever, ever be the same without them, ever. 
and he and he really stressed it. Everybody knows about it now. It's just it's. I would love. We all would love just a weekend of normality where it's you know the games are kicking off at the same time where where everything's running to how how we knew it. I just find it such a. It's so hard for everyone. It's so hard for everyone mentally, you know, and they're trying to adjust to this what this normal that that isn't really normal. Um, I've had some big games um, on Sunday as well, and then Leeds and Wolves on Monday, but um, particularly Leicester and Villa stand out as well. Can Aston Villa come back again against Leicester, who were trying to get to the top four and could well do it after a really savvy window? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's it, it, just talking about Villa, they're doing, um, they're doing so well, aren't they? Um, it's great to see the, Breath of fresh air to see, you know, they've invested heavily over the summer um, and full credit to them. Um, you know, they've been rewarded with the three wins and, um, you know, I for one would love to see them up there because they're a, a, a traditional club, brilliant fan base. Um, and it's great to have a different name and a different story up near the top. Rob, um, Jack Grealish, a lot of talk about Southgate not playing him enough. Do you think that was foolhardy? What do you think he'll have He'll have a point to prove this weekend? Yeah, I think somebody wanted to see Grealish play, um, you know, a, a, a bigger role on uh, yeah, which night, Wednesday night for the Tuesday night for the last of the England games. We saw so many in the uh, in, in, in the week. But I mean, it's so encouraging that, uh, that, you know, the game against Wales and, you know, it's, it's another exciting option that we do have. From, um, from from Gareth Southgate to be able to deploy him, and it's I think for Villa themselves to actually turn things around from last season, where so much was on that spending that went awry, and you know absolutely massive laid out, and then only surviving on the final day of the season. Um, it was actually a point the Leeds owner Andrea Rodrizani said to me when I did interview with him in the the summer when discussing his own spending, like oh, you know we could spend masses but end up in a situation like um, Villa, but you know they're not a punchline now. In fact, you know. Three out of three, and actually um, going all guns after that um, huge, huge victory over Liverpool before the uh, before the international break. Crossy, um, everyone loves going to Craven Cottage. It's the oldest, one of the oldest grounds, and the, it's it's a very special place. But in reality, is it too early about talking about a club free falling? Because there seems to be a lot of antagonism now between Scott Parker and uh, the head of recruitment. Yeah, I did. I did admire Scott Parker, you know, actually directly addressing it, basically, you know, saying that you shouldn't have to apologise you know, for, for a performance, which is always a fine balance, actually. It's a good discussion point. But I think you apologise when your team, you don't feel your team put in the application. If Scott Parker feels that they have, then he's got a good point. And then also, where does it leave all the other players? Listen, you look at Fulham. And, you know, I, I've got a soft spot for Fulham. There's no getting away from it. We all love going there. But I love was... Cottage Pies, Crossy. Come on, that's oh, what you love about Fulham. Dom, Dom, they're absolutely magnificent. It's a brilliant, brilliant <laughs> Nothing at the moment. <laughs> love it. You know, it sort of brings back sort of childhood memories. So you can sort of, you know, <laughs> go to any, any London stadium and, and frankly, you know, sort of on your red bus rover and uh, and rock up, and rock up at, you know, and, and Craven Cottage was, was by, you know, was easily the most sort of kind of, you know, historic and sort of kind of charming one. And it was great. But I have to say, look, it was it was it was a bit of a mess, wasn't it? Basically, the way they came up, it was kind of a bit of an afterthought in terms of the um, in terms of the way that they sort of kind of came up. 
um, through the playoffs at the last minute. Not not, not much time for preparation. They clearly they were already worried about the kind of the struggle and the mistakes they that they made last time. And it felt to me that they basically they went out of their way to try and avoid it this time. So that you know they've got major problems. I'd have to say that they're, they're clearly red, you know, relegation favourites. It'll be interesting to see whether they stick with Scott Parker. Let's hope so, because he did such a good job in kind of holding his nerve last season to keep him up. No, sorry, it's, interesting when, it's interesting when we had talked obviously earlier about the Liverpool United American owners being silent during Project Big Picture. Scott Parker's problem might be at Fulham. The fact he's got Tony Khan, who's really vocal even on Twitter straight after the game. But it's, you know, it's good from our perspective to have someone who's actually we're getting the insight straight away from the top. But it's obviously caused a few additional sorts of uh, issues to grapple with such a, uh, a vocal owner. But, uh, you know, it's good they do engage with the fans and the fans can see them, you know, their thoughts directly. Let's have a quick look as we wrap up to the Champions League. Um, I'm going to go to you, Dom, and look to the North first of all. Who do you think has the toughest challenge on their hands? You've got Manchester City, Porto, Ajax, Liverpool with those injuries now. And PSG, Manchester United, a bit of a coronavirus scare at PSG, which might um, level the odds a bit. Yeah, um, I think they're all in, in intriguing games. Um, Liverpool without Van Dijk um, will be will will be very very intriguing, particularly you know Ajax and um, how buoyant they are and, and will be in, in an occasion such as this. But um, the the one that you'd fear for is is PSG and Man United. Um, you know, last season's finalists aiming to go one better. Um, I think I think that's the pick of the games to be intrigued to watch it. Chelsea, Crossy, you've seen that defence, how vulnerable it is. Severe Europa League winners beat Manchester United comfortably, beat Wolves uh, comfortably. They're a good team. They, they don't have Reguillon, obviously. They've lost a few players in the transfer window, but they are at home. Will that be enough? Yeah, I, I look at it and I still think that basically Chelsea, in that the way that group shapes up generally, I, I do feel as if they'll they'll probably go through really. Um, you know, they'll have enough, you know, for, for the other teams. I think the other sort of force would be Wren. But I think the, yeah, they'll have enough. It will be, I, I have to say, a roller coaster season for Chelsea because they're not good enough defensively, I don't think. And Lampard, I think we, we should praise him more, more than anything else simply because fair play to him. If he wants to go out and attack and score four, if the opposition scores three, well, I'm all for it. Crossy, I have to agree with you. So exciting to watch going forward. And what a week. Um, thank you all for joining us. Thank you, John. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Dom. I have to agree with Rob that I've lost track of days in the past week. A remarkable fortnight, all told, in football. I have to apologise. I haven't covered every single team, but I have a vested interest in those we've missed out. So I promise to make amends next week. Do join us back here to be in the know. <laughs>